You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope you had a great week, unless you're a hacker a-hole who tries to steal your friend's social media accounts and then tries to steal yours after stealing theirs. That takes up way more of your time than you'd think. I didn't go to the cinema this week because I was super slammed. Also, there's not really anything showing that's all that great near me right now. Thank you, January. So maybe next week. Before we get into this week's topic, not really a correction, more of an accidental omission on my part that I wanted to bring up before we get going today. Somebody sent me a message last week about how in my cough syrup head cold bedridden state that I forgot to mention one of the creators of the Fantascope and boy howdy I sure did. Also very impressed some of you are listening that critically. Thank you very much. In an Edison-level twist of irony, both of the sources I used for the Edison episode that mentioned the Fantascope didn't mention Charles Francis Jenkins as one of the co-creators of the Fantascope, which he is. Jenkins was actually the person whom initially dreamed up the idea of the Fantascope, which if you forgot is an early projector, before Thomas Armit joined in, and he provided financial backing and other machine modifications before before the Fantascope debuted. The two would also have a falling out over whom owned the patent, as was to happen during that time, and the courts eventually decided in Armit's favor, which is probably why the sources never mentioned Jenkins. By the time Edison tried to get the patent for the Fantascope, Armit had already won the lawsuit. The one time I don't use Wikipedia for a backup source. So yeah, there were two dudes that created the Fantascope, which was sold to Edison by Armit, and then that became the Vitascope. Anyway, this week, two French inventors and manufacturers of photographic equipment who made another motion picture camera, one that would eventually provide the name cinema to the entire art of motion pictures. But this wasn't any cinema camera. It could shoot, print, and project films all in one box. The Avengers would also become the fathers of the first motion pictures. I'm talking, of course, about the duo whose last name literally means light, Auguste and Louis Lumiere. Not just a talking candlestick, kids. And yes, that was their real surname. Just to be thorough... There are conflicting dates about a couple of the events that took place in this week's episode. The years were all the same, but some of the actual dates were different in some sources. Instead of being kind of vague, I chose the date that appeared in the most sources that didn't cite each other. I mean, this podcast isn't meant to be the most educational or academic source in the world, but the perfectionist that lives in my brain was unhappy until I wrote this paragraph and then set it into a microphone. Also, apologize for the French pronunciations in advance. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. (laughs) 
Lumiere brothers were born in Besançon, France, to Charles Antoine, known as Antoine Lumiere, and Jeanne Josephine Costille Lumiere. Father Lumiere was a painter turned photographer, and shortly after the couple married in 1861, they opened a portrait photography studio where the eldest Lumieres would be born. Auguste arrived a year later in 1862. Louis followed two years after that. After the family moved to Lyon in 1870, another son and three daughters followed. Antoine entered into a partnership with another photographer in Lyon in 1871 to produce photographic plates. He was also winning medals in Paris and Vienna for his photographs. Auguste and Louis would soon become avid photographers, just like their daddy. Auguste and Louis attended La Martiniere, the largest technical school in Lyon. Even from a very young age, the brothers showed exceptional technical ability and high intelligence. Both are reportedly quite strong with organic chemistry, which is a huge asset considering how much of their lives would be consumed by photography and the like. You need to be pretty good at chemistry. On his own, Auguste preferred topics involving biochemistry and medicine, while Louis was more interested in physics. On the family business front, even with Louis and one of his sisters working from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. at the father's factory, it still teetered on the verge of bankruptcy and it looked for quite a while as if the business was going to go belly up altogether. But while their father was away on military service, Louis began experimenting with the equipment and discovered a new dry plate process in 1881, which majorly furthered the development of photography. As you know, because I told you two weeks ago, photographers originally only had wet photographic plates, which required an on-site darkroom to develop the film. Super big pain in the ass. Louis had heard about the dry plates that had been developed in the 1870s and was determined to make his own. He eventually developed his own version of the dry plate, which became known as the blue label plate. Auguste and Louis designed the machines necessary to automate their father's plate production and Louis's blue label plate. Their machines and automation would save the company from bankruptcy. While we know Louis had a big part to do with the development of the blue plate, and Auguste would give Louis most of the credit for creating their biggest invention, the truth is, is that which brother did what and how that led to the success of the company is hard to determine. And an antithetic move to pretty much everybody we've talked about this month, the brothers shared all credit on their works and patents. Although their interests would vary as the focus of the company changed, the two were brothers first and businessmen slash super good inventors second. A great example of how close they were is that in 1893, Louis married a woman named Rose Winkler. A few months later, Auguste married her sister. Because the Lumiere brothers and their father had seen the potential for the dry plate, the trio, once Antoine had returned from war, began producing the plates full-time in 1882. The following year, the trio opened a manufacturing facility in Lyon called the Antoine Lumiere and Sons Company. As the blue label plate became more and more popular among photographers, production increased from a few thousand a year to more than one million a year by 1886 and topping out at 15 million by 1894. With their newfound financial success, the family purchased a 30-room house and a luxury steamboat with all that money, and they were quickly French celebrities. While the family business was booming, a night out to see an American inventor's latest breakthrough would soon change the fate of the Lumieres forever. 
you already know that by this point, we had cameras, we had film stock to make movies with those cameras. We even had a way to view movies, kind of. So what could the Lumieres have possibly done to shape early cinema? Because of their new photographic plate, the Lumieres became well-known businessmen, which led to Antoine getting invited to a demonstration of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope in Paris. He was impressed, but he knew his boys could do better. So Antoine took a length of film from the evening home with him, hoping to inspire his sons to set to work on their next big thing. It worked. The brothers soon identified several problems with the kinetoscope, which included its size and the solitary viewing experience. As you'll soon see, Edison and company were not the only tinkers in this tale. The brothers set to work in winter 1894 on what would become known as the cinematograph, which means writing with movement, a device combining a camera with a printer and projector. The idea to combine all three reportedly came to Louis during a sleepless, migraine-afflicted night. The Lumieres modeled their film perforation system within the camera after a sewing machine, which turned out to be a better method for getting the film through the camera compared to Edison's without mussing it up too often. A similar system would continue in movie cameras until the rise of the digital age, though a better system would overtake it. I'll talk about that briefly a little bit later. The Lumieres patented several significant processes as they continued building their film camera, most notably their film sprocket feeders, which had originally been implemented by Emile Reynaud. Another film camera, also called the Cinematograph, had been patented by Leon Guillaume Bouly. I think is how you say it, on February 12th, 1892. He had not paid his fees to keep his patent up to date, nor did he have the money to further along his machine, so the term cinematograph became available for the Lumiere's use. While their camera was revolutionary, they aren't really considered inventors of the motion picture camera, rather a motion picture camera. Their breakthroughs were seen as merely a means to an end, but those breakthroughs were important nonetheless. For example, their cinematograph was smaller, lightweight, better suited for outdoor use, used less film than Edison. Edison shot his movies at 46 frames per second versus the Lumiere's 16 frames per second, which looks natural and that would become the standard for quite a while. So they helped with that. The cinematograph was operated by a hand crank instead of using electricity and when used as a projector, allowed for multiple viewers to watch at one time. This was done by getting an external light source and lining it up with a lens while the film was refed through the machine. There is a cinematograph, fun fact, at the Academy Museum in Los Angeles, and I nerded out hard when I saw one for the first time because I've always wanted to see one. Like it's it's a very different experience from like seeing all the images of it to actually like getting to walk 360 around this machine I have been learning about since I was like 18. So yeah, I nerded out real hard. It was so pretty. Whoever had it took excellent care of it. It was it was a very cool experience. The cinematograph was revolutionary in that it could be transported and used by just one person. Edison's camera weighed a thousand pounds and relied on an electrical source. The cinematograph weighed 16 pounds and just needed to be hand cranked. The cinematograph also used 35 millimeter film, just like Edison's, so no special film required, though the perforations on the cinematograph were different than the Edison one. In modern terms, going from Edison's kinetoscope to the Lumiere's cinematograph was like jumping from a rotary phone 
to a smartphone basically overnight. The Lumiers were savvy business boys and got international patents on all their shit. The cinematograph was patented in February of 1895, and a month later, on March 18th, they shot their first short film, Workers Leaving the Factory, a 40-second film which depicts exactly what the name of the film suggests. I tried to say the title in French. It did not go well. I'm sorry. I took sign language in college. Anyway, this 46 seconds of film is considered the first motion picture. Four days later, on March 22nd, the Lumieres showed the film to a private audience at the, God help me, Société d'Encouragement à l'Industrie Nationale. It would be on December 28, 1895, if you ever want to get it a present, at the Salon Indienne in the basement of the Grand Café that the motion picture and movie theater was born. Their father, Antoine, not the brothers, screened a series of 10 short films to an entranced audience whom paid one franc each to see the magic. The brothers thought this screening was premature and therefore weren't present that evening, probably in silent protest. This admission fee is what gave the Lumieres the credit of inventing the movie theater. Quick fun fact, George Millier, one of the first true film directors, which is a topic for another month, was present that evening. During the first screening, legend has it that during the train coming into the station, the film where the train comes into the station, audience members freaked out as the train approached the screen. This is recreated in the 2011 film Hugo for you Hugo fans. While an enchanting tale, it's likely malarkey because projection was not inherently a new thing. Magic lantern shows and the like had featured moving parts and moving images. They were just, you know, hand-painted cells. So this was not a completely new experience. So they would have known the train wasn't going to, like, come through the screen and kill them. Adding, or I guess subtracting, from the authenticity of this story is that some sources, notably the press that were present that night, make no mention of this film even being shown that evening. So it's possible that it wasn't even one of the original ten. If it was, what people were likely reporting on was a scream of delight, not one of fear. If you've ever seen a Marvel movie opening night, you've got an all-too-familiar experience with that sound. Does it make you feel better or worse that screaming in a theater in Glee has been a part of the deal since day one? People have literally been laughing, crying, and screaming and cheering over the action unfolding on the silver screen from its very first day. And let's be honest, even with all that crap, watching a movie at home, it just isn't the same, is it? So, here it is. The birth of the movie theater. Technically. Once more, to be fair, this may have been the birth of movies as we know them today, as from this moment on, it is presumed that a movie has been showing somewhere in the world in some capacity every hour of every day since then. It wasn't technically the first time the public, emphasis on public, screening of a projected film took place. Remember, there were dozens, if not hundreds of people all over the world tinkering with film technology at this time. This month, we're just talking about four of the big ones, aka four people where there was enough easily gained information about. In the case of film projection, the person responsible for the first public viewing, as far as anyone knows, was Woodville Latham, an American chemist turned film pioneer. Latham had projected a boxing match in New York on April 21st, 1895. Unlike the Lumiere brothers, or in this case, their dad, Latham didn't think to hype his event up. 
The Lumieres also got the credit for the first public exhibition because of the number of films they presented and their image quality was reportedly far superior and they charged an entry fee. This week's lesson, kids, always hype yourself up and get yourself paid. But yeah, from December 1895 on, movie going became a public event. Remember those? The Lumiere films were an almost instantaneous hit with audiences, and the Lumieres went from making 33 francs from the first screening, charging one franc per person, to much, much more money pretty quickly. There were 20 screenings a day to start, which began at 10 a.m. and ended at 1.30 a.m. the next morning. Within a month, they were raking in, on average, 7,000 francs per week. This financial success on the Lumiere's part was what made Edison pursue the Fantagraph, which, as we all know, would be renamed the Vitascope. After making the thing I've primarily entertained myself with for the last 30-odd years, you'd think the Lumieres would just sit back on their laurels and let the money roll in. Not the case. In the years following their first exhibition of film, the brothers continued to make movies while obtaining patents for their film processes, their film itself, and by the 1890s, Lumiere and Sons was the second leading photographic company in the world after, you guessed it, Eastman Kodak. By modern standards, the Lumiere films are early forms of documentaries or actualities as they were known back then. All of their films were static, meaning still shots that don't move, were about a minute long, and were mostly just snapshots of French life at the time. By 1896, the Lumieres had made more than 40 films that would significantly influence French pop culture. They were also credited with creating the first documentaries, made one of the first comedic sketches, the Gardener, and also the first newsreel. In addition to their own films, they also trained a team of cameramen to travel around the world to not only screen their films, but to also shoot new material. With the 200 additional cinematographs, eventually about 450 in total, the brothers manufactured. Cinematograph theaters soon opened in London, Brussels, Belgium, and New York, and their film catalogs continued to grow, reaching over 2,000 films by the early 1900s. The Lumieres stopped doing this after only a couple of years, however, as competitors were beginning to copy their camera and films. These travel films their cameramen brought home, however, did make the world a smaller place, allowing people a glimpse into far-off locales they had never even dreamed of. Despite them not continuing on with the travelogues, the cinematograph would be credited with helping found the cinema communities and industries of Russia, Australia, and Japan, and probably several others. In November 1896, the Lumiere brothers established their own shop in New York, selling their equipment and films. This was pretty, pretty successful for a very short while, but by April 1897, they began liquidating stock before transferring their business to American agents to handle. This was partly because the Lumiere brothers had gotten in big trouble with American customs, they were importing their cameras and films illegally, and the water got so hot their manager ended up having to flee the country. It also didn't help that their film sprockets were becoming obsolete, as the Edison Eastman ones were quickly becoming the industry standard. The Lumiere brothers began to issue copies of their films with both their original perforations and the Edison ones, but in doing so, they slowly made their own invention, the cinematograph, obsolete. Before the end of 1897, the cinematograph had been largely cast aside for the Lumiere cinematograph Model B, a projector that only accommodated Edison perforated films. It was just a projector. It didn't do any of the other things. 
As audiences grew, so did demands for longer films. In a response to that, early film pioneers, which included the Lumieres and Edison, began experimenting with this, but the film kept jamming in the projectors. Re-enter Woodville Latham. If you are eagle-eared, you may remember that in addition to technically holding the first public screening ever, he also was responsible for a pretty important invention that I mentioned last week. It was the Latham Loop which was another method for feeding film through a camera or projector. And basically what it did that made it better is that it added an additional series of sprocket feeders to prevent the film from getting jumbled up inside the camera. The trick was allowing loops of film to form within the camera, loosening the tension of the film before and after it passed in front of the lens. It's a little bit easier to see than to explain. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see this thing in action. But this invention further made the Lumiere cinema inventions more and more obsolete. Despite all of their success and their successful invention of a camera that could shoot 75 millimeter film in 1900, meaning that it was one of the early IMAX cameras, the brothers decided to return to photographic technological developments in 1905 after themselves releasing 1,422 films, all only about a minute in length. They believed that, quote, the cinema is an invention without any future. It would be novelty soon enough. Many people at that time viewed it as cheap theater. Record a performance once and show it a thousand times. And most early theaters were just temporary setups at like unused storefronts or as part of a traveling vaudeville act. Back in the lab, starting in 1903, two years before they left cinema behind altogether, the brothers produced the first practical color photography process known as the Autochrome Lumiere. The Lumiere company actually continued to be a major supplier of photographic products throughout Europe well into the 20th century. I believe, and I don't have time to look this up, I believe they existed up until the 1980s until they were absorbed by a bigger company. Following their photographic inventions and productions, Louis focused on stereoscopy or 3D technology, which at the time kind of looked similar to like a holographic image, like on a postcard you get at a at a novelty shop, and also attempted to apply that to films throughout the 1930s, while Auguste focused more on medical research, including studies on tuberculosis and cancer. He also invented one of the first x-ray machines. These were two really smart dudes, you guys. With lives filled with many inventions and accomplishments, Louis passed away on June 6, 1948, and Auguste followed on April 10, 1954. After their deaths, the brothers appeared on commemorative postage stamps and medallions across France, commemorating their great achievements. They were also set to be featured on the 200-franc banknote in 1995 to celebrate the centennial of film, but this was canceled a mere two days before the bills were set to be distributed, because of the brothers' political leanings during World War II. Both supported the Vichy collaborationist government, which, without getting into it too much, meant basically that they may have been majorly down with the Nazis, like, yay, Nazis for them. But yeah, they were, they were into, they were probably super down with the Nazis. So yeah, that's not a, that's a that's a not so great terrible thing that I learned about these two this week. As a result, 3.4 billion francs worth of bills had to be destroyed and their image was replaced with Gustave Eiffel. I'm assuming I don't have to tell you what he did. The brothers would be, however, in 2012, commemorated on a special 10 euro coin. The Musée Lumière at the Institut Lumière, which is a museum exhibiting the accomplishments of the brothers, exists to this day on the site of the Lumière factories in Lyon, France. 
The Lumieres did a crazy amount of things in their lifetime, and one of the greatest things they ever did was bring the motion picture to the masses, creating one of the most profitable art forms in the world. So, the next time you're in a movie theater, consider its legacy before you start messing around with your phone. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got some merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm off next week because it is a five Sunday month and I've opted to only do four episodes a month so I don't go fully crazy. But I'll be back in February with a month about African-American pioneers of cinema. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Mm -hmm.